1: you know I was 21 years old instead of looking for another job at the time I said I'm gonna go to culinary school like it's six months you know I just want to learn how to cook for myself and my boyfriend at the time who's now my husband and I just really wanted to learn how to eat better and at that same time I got a job as a private chef for a family in Malibu, which is hysterical because I still hadn't tried fish yet.
2: Welcome to Don't Stop
3: Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe.
2: If you're enjoying our podcast, then come on over to our website at don'tstopusnow.co and sign up for our community with some awesome things planned for this
3: year. Now for this week's episode. We're so impressed by how this week's guest has grown her business and brand from barely qualifying as a side hustle to become the entrepreneurial foodie sensation that it is today. We're talking about California-based chef, author, and influencer, Garbi Dalkin. Garbi
2: is the CEO of What's Garbi Cooking, a food business that grew from a part-time blog to a social media and mainstream media hit. Garby and her team are a content and recipe-creating machine. She has more than 450,000 Instagram followers, and that is a lot. Yep. She's published two cookbooks, with another on the way. She's appeared on some of America's most-watched TV shows. She has several product ranges at kitchenware giant William Sonoma, and has numerous other brand partnerships as
3: well. It's pretty incredible. When we met Garby, we were blown away by her obvious dedication and commitment. Because, get this, we actually met her whilst on holiday in Patagonia. And in between horse riding and a hearty Estancia lunch, Garby was clearly working on social media, and we were intrigued. Yeah, I think it's probably safe to say that Garby's probably the first and
2: last guest we'll meet in Patagonia. Yeah,
3: but never say never, Claire. True. (laughs) In today's episode, you'll learn how this famous foodie had never tasted fish until she started at culinary school. What the secret to her building up such a loyal and ever-growing number of followers is how her business smarts and initiative led her to her first product line with Williams Sonoma, and the biggest challenge she's had to overcome in order to be able to delegate and grow her business. Without further ado, enjoy this episode
2: with the effervescent, super smart, and delightful Garby Dalkin.
3: Garby Dalkin, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Hi, how are you guys? We are great, thank you. And how are you? So good. So happy to be here. We are too. And how small a world is it? Hey, we met on holiday in Patagonia. You're in Seattle right now. And for our listeners, Gabi is a culinary sensation doing amazing things. And on that note, Gabi, how would you describe what you do to people these days? This is one of
1: my favorite questions to answer because seven or eight years ago when I first started this, I remember my parents were at a wedding and the friend asked them what I did for a living and my dad couldn't explain it. (laughs) He was like, I don't know. So now I would say I live and breathe in the food media world. So I have a blog, I have cookbooks, I have product lines, I'm a spokesperson for different brands. Basically, if it involves food, I do it.
3: (laughs) And that kind of underestimates, it feels like, the enormous following that you've got. And what does an average day look like for you?
1: Yeah, so it totally depends. Like this week, I split my time between LA and Seattle for the minute. My husband's starting a company up in Seattle, but we're usually LA-based, but... Earlier this week on Saturday and Sunday, I was in Malibu shooting a feature for a magazine. Monday, I was recipe testing for my new cookbook during the day. And then Monday evening, I did an Instagram Live with my husband. Tuesday, I was recording a couple of other podcasts. Every day is different. And right now there's food coming out of every room in my house because we're currently recipe testing my third cookbook. So that gets peppered in amongst all my other obligations.
3: (laughs) Well, we look forward to digging into that and uh, hearing more about what you've got planned. But if we wind the clock back, I think you grew up in California, right? Tell us about your childhood. Yeah,
1: well, I actually grew up in Arizona, but I Ah. went to college in California. So I grew up in Arizona from you know, when I was basically born until after high school, I left after high school and I was the pickiest eater and I just played tennis and I swam and I was super active and I didn't eat anything. I never ate guacamole, which is weird considering I lived in Arizona and it wasn't until high school that I really started. I tried steak for the first time when I was 17. Like I had a very (laughs) sheltered food childhood.
3: (laughs) Now, is that trying state when you're 17? Is that because you were so picky or did your, your family vegetarian or something? Why was that so late?
1: So my mom is a vegetarian. When she was pregnant with me, she got like turned off from meat. I don't know, I guess that happens when you're pregnant sometimes. And she just never cooked it. So we would only have it when we went out to eat. So we ate very vegetable heavy meals and I never craved steak. I never wanted fish. Like I didn't try fish till I was in culinary school much, much later. You're kidding. huh?
2: No, I know. I know.
1: I'm basically an alien.
2: <laughs> wow. So that is just incredible when you consider where you are today. I know that your whole family, I think, are in the medical profession. Is that right?
1: Yes. My mom's a physical therapist. My dad's a prostate surgeon. Everyone kind of dabbles in medicine in some way, shape or form. And I grew up wanting to be a doctor. I I actually had grand plans of moving to Africa after college and working in a clinic. And I remember when I went to college, I enrolled as pre-med and then I got to OCHEM or something like that. And That's organic chemistry, isn't it? Yep organic chemistry. And I was in like the third class and we had a pop quiz and I'm pretty sure I bombed it. And I called my dad. I was like, it's not happening. (laughs) Wow. "I'm, I'm not going to med school. I'm sorry. I love you. I'll figure something else out. And he was I mean, I have you guys met my parents. They're awesome. They're so supportive. They were just like, "Okay, good for you. Good for you for figuring it out now.
2: I mean, lucky, really, because the amount of investment you have to make in a medical career is um, pretty intense, isn't it?
1: Yes, it's sizable.
2: <laughs> and so what happened after that?
1: So after that, I switched over to business and I was on the tennis team in college and I quit the tennis team halfway through my junior year and switched my major to business and got an internship in the city because it was recommended to me by one of my marketing teachers. And loved it. I loved working for small business owners and learning the ins and outs. And I was wearing so many different hats working for these couple of women that I worked with throughout the rest of my college years. And so then I just graduated with a business degree and moved that was up in the Bay Area. And I moved down to Los Angeles after that and continued in the kind of businessy fashion world for about six months after college and the whole company I was at, it was a small company, but the company I was at post-college ended up folding. It was in 2008. And, you know, a lot of companies folded in 2008.
3: Yeah. That was the global financial crisis.
1: Yep. That was a bad year. And I decided, you know, I was 21 years old. Instead of looking for another job at the time, I said, I'm going to go to culinary school. It's six months. You know, I just want to learn how to cook for myself and my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. And I just really wanted to learn how to eat better. And at that same time, I got a job as a private chef for a family in Malibu which is hysterical because I still hadn't tried fish yet. Well,
2: and uh, uh, I'm just <laughs> hang on I'm just going to stop you there that's just so hang on so so you went to culinary school because you decided that you needed to eat better and you're probably trying to impress literally. your boyfriend.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to know how to throw a dinner party and how to cook and time things and I was really into watching Food Network at the time watching Rachel Ray and Bobby Flay and all these different people and I was like, I could learn how to cook.
2: I could do this. OMG. And then, but how did you get a celebrity chef job, you know, with no experience?
1: Yeah. So, well, the first job I got was for this really incredible family in Malibu. They were not celebrities, but we had so much in common. They were German. My mom's German. We liked eating the same things. We meshed really well together. So I worked for them. And then about two years into that, Jessica Simpson, who is a fashion designer, singer, celebrity in America called and was like, we want someone to be our chef. And I was like, I can't say no to that. That's a cool opportunity. So at that point, i had had a little bit more experience, but I definitely say I, I got my footing with the family in Malibu.
2: <laughs> That's a pretty big thing to sort of jump in there. Was it scary?
1: Terrifying, absolutely terrifying. But I function best under pressure. So I like living on the edge, I guess, if you want to call it that. And so it was no big deal to go into someone's home and cook for them and figure it out as I went. And I thought if the food tasted like crap, at least my personality might make up for it. I don't really know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That is classic. And so, what was it like being a chef to a celebrity? I'm sure people would be sort of thinking, you know, are they really difficult? Is it more stressful? Or were there certain food quirks? Did you come across ingredients you'd never heard of before because of requests?
1: Yeah. So I cooked for a couple different celebrities. Jessica would probably the most notable one, but she eats exactly how I eat. So it was incredible. We had a great relationship. I would call her a, like a dear friend of mine any day of the week. She's from Texas. So she had a lot of Tex-Mex, which is similar to how we eat in Arizona. And she was very supportive of me shopping at farmers markets. And then we both like to indulge in the occasional dessert. So it was really like cooking for a friend. I did cook for a couple other high-profile people who were much more difficult and just crazy people, period.
3: And then, of course, you started your blog. Was that in 2008, around that time or 2009?
1: Yeah, so the blog, culinary school, and working as a private chef in Malibu all started within two to three weeks of each other.
3: That is just insane that you had the, the guts to take the job as a chef whilst beginning culinary school and never having tried fish.
1: Yeah, fake it till you make it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's fantastic. So we love someone that's got confidence because we believe all too few women do. But So tell us about why you started the blog.
1: Yeah. So the blog started because I was going to culinary school and I was convinced no one in my family would believe that I was eating fish or I had learned how to eat mushrooms. I just wanted to brag to my friends and my family back home and be like, look, I'm not just eating grilled cheese and buttered noodles anymore. And it was very much just like a diary, if you will, for the first year and a half or so. It was like a very slow roll until any brands or fans or anything started taking notice.
3: And, you know, because obviously it's, you know, food is now consuming your life. And yet before you started the blog, as you were saying, it was like only months prior that you'd really had a very sort of narrow diet. Can you remember the moment where food ignited your passion? You thought, this is it. This is home.
1: Kind of. I remember when I got over all of my weird eating qualms. I was in culinary school. It was week three or four. And each week had a theme. That week was vegetables. And we each got assigned a vegetable that we had never worked with before. And I had never had mushrooms. And I got assigned all these wild mushrooms. I didn't know what the heck to do with them. And my teacher suggested making risotto which i had also never tried before and i was like oh my god this is disgusting i can't make mushroom risotto gross and she looked at me and she's like if you're ever going to make it in the food world gobby you have to expand your horizons and i was like okay personal challenge accepted thank you <sighs> and i made the most well i remember it as the most incredible mushroom risotto Ever. I caramelized the mushrooms with butter and herbs and salt and pepper, and I put them over a creamy risotto, and everybody loved it, including me. I got to take some of it home and feed it to my boyfriend at the time. His name's Thomas. We're now married. And it was a huge aha moment for me because I realized just because I didn't know how to do something, I could figure it out. I had this really amazing thing in my pocket. It was a phone and it had Google on it and I could just Google how to make mushrooms and really impress people. So I was kind of figuring it out as I went and it ended up working out.
2: Fantastic. And let's move to sort of now, can you describe what your business looks like now in terms of the scope of it and the size of it?
1: Yes. So I quit private chefing four or five years into it, and I just do Wet Cooking full time. And Wet Cooking, I think, is an overarching umbrella brand of everything that I do. So part of that includes the blog where we publish probably on average five to six pieces of original content a week. I have two cookbooks published that are sold all around the world um, and a third book in the works. I have a line of products that are sold exclusively at Williams-Sonoma, and they're actually – just domestic to start, but they're going to Canada, Australia, and I think England this spring. And I do a lot of brand partnerships. So if a brand wants to work with me and it makes sense and it fits within what I would envision an acceptable partnership, there are some brands I definitely can't work with because... I don't support the mission, or it's something I would never eat, or it's too processed or something like that. If it falls within something I love, then I can work with them. And I do recipe development and spokesperson work and TV appearances and stuff like that. So I would say those are probably the four main pillars of my business and it evolves constantly.
2: Wow. And were there any pivotal moments in that journey from when you decided to start the blog to Today, or has it just been a slow burn?
1: I would say it's definitely been a slow burn, but there was one moment back in 2016 where I said, I need products. Like, I need people to have a little sprinkle of what's Gabi cooking in their kitchen. Like, I can FaceTime, I can be on Instagram and chat with them and walk them through a recipe, but I want them to have something that they're like, oh, like let me sprinkle a little of this on and, you know, have some some of the gobby zest in my kitchen or whatever. And I cold called two different I called Sir LaTaube and William Sonoma and Sir LaTaube wrote me back right away. These are both home kitchen stores and they were like, we love you. Like we would love to work with you. Come up to Seattle and let's have a meeting. And I went and I didn't feel great. And William Sonoma didn't write me back right away. Hmm. And I was like, I just feel like William Sonoma is the right place. I love them. And. You have to remember, I'm coming from a place where I work with me and like a small team of six to 10 people, depending on what's going on. Williams-Sonoma is like a huge company with hundreds of employees and they don't respond to every email within two days. So eventually they wrote me back and they're like, come cook for our C-suite and let's figure this out. And I went and it was the most incredible day because I got to cook for everyone that makes decisions there. I got to entertain them. They got to see my personality and hear how I wanted to market my product lines and I remember Neil he is the head buyer walked away and he's like we're going to do something together and I was like yes and then I went back to
2: LA and we did fantastic and what did that mean to your business
1: It was incredible because, you know, technically I'm a food blogger. If someone had no idea anything about food media, I would say I'm a food blogger. And there are very few food bloggers who have product lines. More people have cookbooks and very few people have product lines. So it was something that really could differentiate me from others. So it was just a big moment for me.
3: Phenomenal. It's a great story. I love that you, you went up there.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I hear you talk about this and you're coming from a very sort of smart, savvy approach to marketing. But being a chef and running a business I feel like they're two different things to me. What's been the hardest thing to sort of merge those two together?
1: Oh, great question. I mean, for me, the hardest thing to merge everything together is probably having to be available because, you know, the job is customer service. I'm answering people's questions, whether they're on Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, the website, whatever, all the time. And I also have to balance that with being in the kitchen recipe testing. So the hardest thing is probably time management and making sure I'm getting back to everyone because I respond to everyone on any platform, no matter what. That's my job is to be there. If someone's having a problem about their turkey on Thanksgiving, I have to respond within 45 minutes. Like it's Thanksgiving. They don't have days to wait for me to respond. So I think that's probably the hardest part of my job. Like being a chef, you don't have to do that. You're just in the kitchen cooking and you have other people in the restaurant that are handling all the customer service interaction. But since I have created my own brand and I do all of that, I have to juggle all those different things.
3: Wow. I mean, that is amazing. We know you're responsive because we saw you on the ground on holiday, on horseback, in fact, in Patagonia with a phone phone to hand. So how on earth do you get respite? How do you get to switch off if you have that amazing customer service ethos and want to try and reply in 45 minutes?
1: I don't. I haven't taken a day off in years and I know some people will say that it's completely unhealthy, but... I actually never feel like I'm working. I'm very lucky in the fact that everyone, I would say 99% of the people that follow me are very positive and thankful for all of my response times and all that. So I just feel like I'm talking to friends, kind of. It's, about, I don't really know yeah. if it's healthy, but.
3: Yeah. How about, well, like, say, how about your husband? Does it frustrate him sometimes if you're trying to have a romantic dinner, say, on your anniversary or something?
1: Yeah, if we're like celebrating something or we have to have a very serious conversation about something, I'll leave my phone at home and take two hours and go enjoy myself. But my husband operates in the digital media marketing world as well. So he gets it. And I remember once we were in Palm Springs and it was 115 degrees out. And I wanted to sit outside because that's where the natural light was and I needed a photo. He was pissed. He was like, no, we have to sit inside. I was like, listen, what's Gabi cooking is, you know, allowing us to take these vacations and do all these incredible things. And I think in that moment he was like, oh, you're right. We can sit outside and sweat for 45 minutes throughout lunch. So you can get an Instagram photo so you can do Gabi's guide to Palm Springs. He saw like the whole domino effect in his brain and he hasn't said anything ever since.
3: And for our listeners who have yet to discover your sensationalness, you have almost 450,000 Instagram followers, if I'm not mistaken. You've talked a bit about the always on nature of how you like to be able to interact with them. But what are the kind of responsibilities? Does it mean you have to feel that you look impeccable all the time to be able to capture what you're doing? You know, tell us a bit about just how you got there.
1: Yeah, well, first, do I have to look impeccable all the time? The answer is absolutely not. I look impeccable 2% of the time. (laughs) Oh, that's not true. No, it is. Most of the time I'm wearing the same shirt, sweatshirt I wore yesterday and yoga pants and my hair is messy. But I actually think that's part of my appeal because, you know, we live in this world of Instagram where everyone looks perfect all the time and they're always dressed up and wearing fancy this and that and that. And it's not attainable. And I want my brand to be very approachable and aspirational, but not unattainable. So if I'm wearing my pajamas or a robe, or I just got off of a workout and I'm sweaty, it doesn't stop me from going on Instagram because that's just real life.
3: I'm sure many of our listeners dream of starting an online business or a blog. What would be your advice to them?
1: That's a great question. I can't tell you how many of my best friends have decided to start a blog and then quit within one month because they realize how much work it is. Same goes for a podcast or a YouTube channel or anything like that. I would say, A, you can't be in it to make money. You're not gonna make money for the first couple years. Like it's definitely gonna be a side hustle and you're gonna have to grow your audience and figure out your voice and what you stand for. But as soon as you can do that, that's when you're you're going to start changing lives and making things happen because you're doing something that only you can do because no one else has your voice and your point of view and be consistent about it. I think people have come to depend on recipes from me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and a meal plan on Sunday. And they know they're getting a video Monday night. If you have a rhythm and you have a reason to what you're doing, that's going to be a huge help.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's great to hear because we feel that too. Having started the podcast, you know, last June, you've just got to be really consistent. You've got to just keep at it. And you are in in front of the camera quite a bit, I think, because you've done a few TV shows, but you know, also video takes a bit of guts because you're putting yourself out there. Does it scare you or how do you feel when you're doing it?
1: Well, now I love it. It's my favorite part of my job, but if you go back seven years ago and you watch my video, I was awful. (laughs) Like It was so bad. And I was so nervous. And I don't know what the heck I thought I was wearing because I look like a complete fool. But I think if you want to do video, the only way you're going to get better at video is doing it over and over and over again. And you don't have to publish them if you don't want to. I made a YouTube video once a week and I posted it on my YouTube channel and like nobody was watching, but I was watching and I was analyzing how I was talking to the camera and when there was awkward pauses how did it make me feel because that's how a viewer is going to feel so I was really aware of what I was doing and now I think I'm pretty comfortable in front of the camera it was a long road
2: (laughs) yes it was all really about practice and iterating and learning for sure and how did you and and how do you because I'm sure you still get nervous how do you get through your own nerves
1: Yeah. So first time I did the Today Show, which was about six months ago, I completely blacked out for the first five seconds. I have no idea what I said or did because I was like, this is my first time on the biggest national TV show in America in the morning. And as soon as I there was just something in it that clicked. And I think for me, that's when I started cooking. Like I, the intro was over. I was cooking my recipe that I had developed. I was doing something I was really comfortable with. And I was going to turn around and teach the host. That's when things got really, they started jiving because I was comfortable with the material I was working
3: with. So for someone who's in the public eye both on television and then very high profile in social media. Have you ever experienced the negative side of that? You know, have you ever been trolled or anything like that?
1: Yeah, infrequently. I'm lucky in that I don't get negative comments a lot. And I think that's because I don't do anything that's so unattainable. But there are definitely people out there. I have a list. I'm sure you can tell. Like I had as a kid and my mom was like, do you want to go to speech therapy? And I went for five minutes. I was like, this sucks. I'm going home. I don't care. And there was one girl who I'm sure meant to send a message to her friend, but actually sent it to me. And it was just like ripping into my lisp. And I wrote her back. And she was mortified. So it was kind of funny. But I feel like when I do get the occasional troll, I write them back. And nine times out of ten, they're like, shit, sorry, I was having such a bad day. And I took that out on you. And then there's the 1% of the time that people are just horrible humans and you block them.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, Gabi, a question that we usually ask is what would you tell – Well, we usually ask your 30-year-old self, but I don't know whether asking your 30-year-old self makes sense because I have a sense that wasn't that long ago. So what would you tell your 20-year-old self if you could from the experience that you've got today?
1: Wow. I love that question. I would tell myself to not be afraid to cut the fat. And that means if there are people in your life that are not contributing or being positive, I call them energy vampires, I would cut that. If there's something you're doing or a habit that's not healthy, I would cut that. Like, it's okay to edit as you go and Ever since I realized that, it has really helped propel me forward. And I wish I had known that earlier. And I wasn't so concerned about keeping in touch with people who weren't bringing me down or weren't contributing anything positive
2: to my life. And what was the moment where you actually realized that?
1: Mm, I lost a friend a year and a half ago over like some silly reason. I couldn't go to an event she was going to, and it was for a health reason. And she didn't understand it. And totally railed me and like ripped me a new one. And I was like, I don't need this kind of negativity in my life. I don't need someone who's has all this hostile pent up energy towards me. And I just let it go. And it was so enlightening. And I wish I had known to do that earlier.
3: (laughs) What's been the biggest challenge for you as you moved and grew as a business from being a one woman band to having this team? What's been the biggest challenge there?
1: trusting other people. Remember when you would get like a school project and they'd be like, it's a group project. I would hate group projects because (laughs) nobody would ever do it. Like I could just do it better myself. And so being able to delegate has been a huge learning curve for me. And I remember someone once told me, if you can find someone to do it 80% as good as you can do it, hire them to do it because that's the only way you're going to grow. And luckily I found people who do things much better than I do in most regards and have really helped accelerate my brand forward. But it's been really hard learning how to trust people because it's not me and my brand is all about me. So having other people do things on my behalf was very scary for me.
2: How have you gone about building that trust?
1: Yeah, I have. Well, and I've I've had to fire a couple people, which is the most terrifying thing to me. I don't know how people do that every day. It's, I'm terrible at it. But I started working with two of my best friends, Matt and Adam, who do all the photography and food styling for my site and social channels. And that was... We were friends first and we just loved hanging out together and uh, as what's gotby cooking was able to invest more into the overhead of my company and images I started hiring them and I trust them implicitly so that wasn't terribly hard. I have someone who helps me manage Facebook and Twitter and scheduling content and I think for the first 6 months we really were figuring each other out and what my voice was and how they were going to emulate my voice when they were scheduling things on Twitter and all that and she- She's just like a godsend. I love her. And she gets like also a rapid responder like I am. So we jive really well together. I've had a couple of assistants that, you know, weren't great fits and I've had to let them go. I think it's just kind of like an instinctual feeling that it's either working or it's not.
2: Yeah, well, it seems like it's both instinctual and you test things out and you work out whether it's actually going to work or not.
1: Yeah, that's the same thing I was talking about earlier about trimming the fat. If it's not working out, it's okay to admit that this was the wrong decision. And this isn't the right fit. And I wish you well and
2: good luck. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what's next for what's Garby cooking?
1: My next cookbook, we're working on my third cookbook right now, will come out in spring, April 2020, which is very exciting, and I'm sure I'll hit the road for a book tour after that. Um, In March and April 2019, I'm launching new products, so I have two new seasonings coming out with Williams-Sonoma, and then two olive oil dipping sauces, and then a cheese board kit. So it's everything you would need to make the most
3: beautiful cheese board. Can you give us a sneak preview of the the third book?
1: Oh, yeah, it's going to be similar in theme to my second book. So still California Girl. But the idea is that there's so many books coming out right now that are just like, it's only keto or only paleo, or we don't eat fruit anymore. Or we don't eat carbs or this, this and that. And I don't believe in any of that. So it's all about balance and being able to do what you want and eat what you want and keeping it all in check and just really dependable recipes. And I have no idea what it's going to be called yet. So if anyone has any great ideas, my email is open.
2: Excellent. Well, we'll put your email on the episode page. And Gabby, do you have a motto in life?
1: Oh, yes, I do. What a great question. I am a 32-year-old woman and perfectly capable of booking my own flights to go travel home to see my parents. However, if it's Thanksgiving and I'm going home, I will ask my mom, like, will you book our flights for us? And she'll, nine times out of 10, say no. And I will say, but it didn't hurt to ask. I guess my motto is, it doesn't hurt to ask. And no one's going to do it for you unless you ask, or no one's going to help you get to where you're you're going to go unless you ask and you ask for what you want and if they say no find someone else who can help you get there
2: yeah we sort of did that with you we were like yeah I I just remember meeting you
1: guys in Patagonia and I was like, you are so cool. Why aren't we just going to have a 17 hour lunch and (laughs) hang out and drink all the wine and hang out with the horses? It was so, I loved meeting you guys. And I feel like travel brings so many people together because when you're on a trip like that, you're obviously of similar mindsets and you want to see the world and experience different cultures and get to remote parts of the globe and I just think it's really cool when you meet people and then continue friendships after vacation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the one of the magical things about travel. Gabby, we've had such fun talking to you. It's been really fantastic hearing about the journey that you've been on. I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know a bit more about you. How can they find out more?
1: Yep. So you can go to my website, com, or you can follow me on every social media platform at what's Gaby cooking. No G at the end because Instagram cut me off back in the day.
2: Well, we'll put that
3: on our episode page to make it really easy for people to link to you. And here's to our next meal together. I'm really looking forward to it already, Gabby.
1: Where are we going to go? I, I would really like to go to Kenya or Namibia or to go see the mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Oh yes, that's the one.
2: All right. But before that, maybe we can get you on a plane out to Sydney for one of our wonderful breakfasts and uh, flat whites.
1: I think we're going to go to the Australian Open next year. So we'll just hop over to Sydney when we're done.
2: Oh, well, I mean, that's just perfect. That's a must do. Yeah. We'll see you then then. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Fantastic. Thank you again. Thanks,
1: guys.
3: Seriously, hats off and big respect for Garby. It takes such incredible dedication and persistence to build the business she has today, doesn't it? It sure
2: does. You know, particularly her amazing customer service ethos, where she's literally replying to followers 365 days of the year.
3: I know, it's really incredible, but she obviously loves what she does.
2: Yeah, that comes out really loud and clear. The other thing is the stamina involved. As Garby says, her business has been mostly a slow burn over 11 years now. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, a lot of people look at a thriving online content-based business and totally underestimate the journey, the stamina and the resourcefulness required to get to that point.
3: Yeah, that's so true. And I think it's not just online businesses. I think it's the case with offline businesses as well. We can make that sort of judgment. Yet the message that we hear time and time again is so right. You know, there really is no such thing as an overnight sensation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunate, though. Yeah, I
3: know. I wish there was. Well,
2: that's this episode done and dusted.
3: Can you think of someone who'd enjoy hearing Garby's incredible story? Then why not share it with them now? Stay tuned for
2: next week when we interview Katie Vanek-Smith, who's on a mission to disrupt one of the oldest industries around. See you then. Ciao for now.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.